Hello and welcome to the Star Trek Academy, a podcast about the latest new episodes of Star Trek. Today we're looking at Season 1, Episode 9 of Star Trek Prodigy, entitled A Moral Star, Part 1. Your hosts are two of the Academy faculty members. I'm Michael Merrick. I'm the media professor. And I'm Rodney Cup. I'm the philosophy professor. And you can find our announcements about new episodes and other things by following us on Twitter at Trek underscore Academy. And you'll find us on a lot of podcast sites, but some of them seem to make it harder to find us than others. So we recommend going to anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy and finding the subscribe links there. Well, Rodney, you called it when you said that you thought our protostar crew would be returning to Tars Lamora. Mm-hmm. And you also called it when you pointed out that Murph's ability that we saw in a previous episode to swallow <laughs> explosives and not yeah. be hurt would come back as a future plot episode. And actually, I suspect what happened is they worked on the story of this episode that we're talking about today and realized they had to plant a seed in a previous episode so that people would go, oh, okay, I see that plot twist. Anyway, so uh, congratulations on two of those things. Thank you. You can see, you know, as we go on here that the the stories are carefully thought out, which I appreciate. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, we should note that with a discovery resuming in two weeks, we'd like to invite you to check out our podcasts about the season so far. If you haven't already listened, you can go to anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy and find our podcast episodes Uh, that are relevant. Those are 41 and then 43 through 48. Yeah, for the first half of the Discovery season. Well, before we start talking more about this episode, it's time for a brief plot outline. There are some spoilers here, but if you haven't seen the episode yet, there's still a lot to see that we're probably not mentioning in passing. Uh, Or if you're listening to this podcast down the road a bit, uh, this outline will help uh, refresh your memory. So with our brief summary, here is Professor Rodney Cup. Okay, well, um, at the beginning of this episode, the crew discovers a recording stored in a copy of Dreadnought that the vehicle replicator built. And it contains a message from the diviner. And that is if they return the protostar to him, he'll release the miners. But if they don't, the miners will pay the price. They don't know if the diviner is going to keep his word, but if they ask Starfleet for help, they might not arrive in time. Difficult decision. Well, even though Dal worries that they could lose everything, he decides to return to Tars Lamora, but only after they've devised a plan for the encounter. So when they arrive in Starfleet uniforms, by the way, the diviner demands that Gwen come with him. Now, Gwen agrees to this, but only if Dal and his crew are given the Rev 12 so that they can evacuate the miners. So these new terms are accepted, and Gwen, Dreadnought, and the diviner board the protostar. But as they depart, the diviner destroys the Rev 12's power generators effectively condemning everyone left behind to death. But when the Diviner tries to engage the Proto-Warp, they discover that the Proto-Core isn't on the ship. The Proto-Core has been hidden safely inside the indestructible Murph, and the crew begins to execute their plan to restore power to the Rev-12 
and evacuate the miners. That's the episode. And thank you for that uh, summary. In a little bit, we'll talk about the philosophy and the themes and the morals to the story. But as usual, there are a few things about the episode we want to touch on first. And Rodney, I'm still kind of confused about Dreadnought. Last week, I said that I thought that the shuttle replicator was rebuilding him. If so, the fabrication was not complete. Or maybe I'm still confused about how part of him was left behind because last week it seemed like all of him was whooshed out the rear of the ship into space. And so I'm, I'm not quite clear as to how his head and part of his torso was in this episode on Protostar. Yeah, I'm confused by all this as well. I'm right where you are with this. I don't, I don't get it. Maybe uh, sometime in the future, not for a podcast, but if we go back to watch, we can freeze frame and try to check some stuff. Who knows? Yeah. So also in this episode, Dal shows the growth of his personality and his leadership skills when he understands that he just can't wing it and going back to Tars Lamora, can't wing it with one of what he calls his half-baked plans. And he knows they need a super well-thought-out plan. And I think maybe his experience with the Kobayashi Maru a few episodes ago helped him understand that in real life, there are rarely do-overs. I mean, that's what Kobayashi Maru was about for him. He did it a hundred times or more and still <laughs> didn't win. But so they do plan the heck out of going back to Tars Lamora, but in kind of like a typical caper movie or a caper episode from some other series, the viewers don't know the full plan. So we're in suspense as it plays out, and therefore we can be surprised by plot twists. Yeah, this the, the writers here, they're really good at uh, keeping us in suspense, aren't they? Yeah. I thought it was fun that we see the Cation character, the feline character that we also saw in the first couple of episodes. Uh, that character is back here for the season finale two-parter. Yeah, and... You know, I like this character and we've seen her more than any of the other miners that have been left behind on Tars Lamore. And I'm just wondering, you know, is she going to join the crew next season? Maybe I just I'm thinking there should be there's a reason why we keep seeing her. Of course, I could be wrong about that, but I'm you know, I'm wondering. Well, maybe the writers or the animators just like cats and made that decision I could see that that one character kind of stands in for all of the others that are stranded there on Tars Lamora. And by seeing, I think it's a her, by seeing the, the Cation's reactions, we get a feel for other people. I, I don't know, but uh, it, was, yeah, it, was, point. it was kind of interesting and the character's cute, of course. Did it seem to you, and this is not the first time we've seen the protostar with the protostar drive engaged, but did it seem to you that the nacelles, which usually are up kind of above the saucer or above the, the, the primary hull, like on most Starfleet ships we're used to, did it seem that they drop down lower, down below when the protostar engines engaged? Yes, yes. It definitely seems that way to me. Yeah, I'm I sure of it. I'd sort of noticed it before, but I looked more closely this week. You remember Voyager had movable nacelles, and That's that right. was at the time it was explained that by moving them, they could fine tune their passage through subspace. When the ship was at, at impulse, they were straight out, and when they were mm -hmm. at warp, they were, they were up at an angle. So maybe that is what's happening here. I also note that, and I don't I'm not sure we knew this before, that the Diviner and Gwyn have some kind of psychic ability. 
which to signal it makes their heads glow when they when they connect. But the diviner detected that Gwen was uh, lying or being misleading. And I mm -hmm. wonder if Gwen learned what the diviner's big secret is. I don't believe that we saw her again in this episode after that scene. So we don't really know what she knows. Yeah, no, you're right. That That's a good point too. It, it kind of reminded me of the people of Quajon in a way. Um, but that's a good point. You know, if it goes both ways, the communication there, um, maybe she does know what he's up to. I'd, I'd like to know. <laughs> a little bit vaguely like a Vulcan mind meld, maybe. I don't yeah. know. So I, I have a complaint, Michael, if I could lodge it. Actually, I've got a couple, but here's my first one. I don't understand. I had a really big problem in this episode with the diviner. Why would he destroy the Rev-12 power generators? I mean, he has the protostar. He has Gwyn. Why would he condemn the miners to death? Now, I mean, it's fine if the writers want the diviner to be evil. I, I don't have a problem with that. But I feel like we need to be able to make sense of his motivations, which is hard at this point, of course, because we don't quite know what they are. But here it just seems like he's being evil for the sake of being evil. And I, I just can't make sense of it. Yeah, I, I like it much better when the bad guy, whoever that is, where you can still kind of understand where they're coming from, what their motivation is, what their backstory is that got them to, got them to where we are. And of course, there is a backstory here we don't know about, but yeah. it sure seems like he's being evil for the sake of being evil, like you said. So, yeah. Now, he didn't destroy the Rev-12 itself. He didn't destroy the right. ship, just its power systems. And we know that after he departed, they're working to get them back online. So the expectation is they will be back online and the Rev-12 can depart. It's not clear to me if getting the power systems back online is only possible because they have the protostar system, whatever it is, uh, mm -hmm. inside Murph. Maybe the diviner knew that they could repair their system. And he just wanted to clean getaway, didn't want the Rev-12 chasing the protostar. I, I don't know. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. I'm not sure if it does. <laughs> well, they need to charge the proto drive. They would still have an opportunity to pursue them in the Rev-12. He does, though. He says, he tells Dreadnought to leave them with nothing. And he says he promised them a ship and not their lives. And to me, though, that just sounds like his intention is just to kill everybody, you know? Yeah, and I hope he ends up being more nuanced than that. I always hope that bad guys in our fictional stories have at least some not bad in them. And yeah. we've seen one or two hints about that where he struggled over abandoning Gwen to take the protostar a few episodes ago. But, That's right. Uh, we just don't know what makes him tick yet. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I agree with you completely. You know, all we, we need to have round characters here. Flat characters are boring. And that goes for villains too. It just makes them more interesting. And, you know, the diviner, he does justify his actions. He's, he makes these vague references to needs that are greater than his or Gwyn's. And at one point he says that he was blinded by duty when he chose the protostar over Gwyn. So, I mean, this suggests that he's following some kind of moral purpose or moral code. But, you know, we're talking about mass murder here, I think. And I, I don't think anything in the Star Trek universe justifies that, right? No, I, I agree, certainly. And in a previous episode, I don't remember which one, there was just a couple of words where he hinted 
that he was on a mission assigned by someone else. Oh, okay. Well, that would explain the duty, right? Yeah. So, but, but it was, it was not clear then and it's still not clear now. This is like a really juicy mystery, Michael. I I really (laughs) want to find out what's going on here. You know, and if that is the suggestion, who, whose orders are, is he following? It's just really interesting. I, I do have another complaint though. So the computer tells us, I guess this is my biggest problem with the episode. Uh, the computer tells the diviner, you know, when he tries to engage the proto drive, that the exotic matter dilithium matrix is missing. And back in episode five, I checked, Zero hypothesized that this exotic matter that they're talking about here is a miniature proto star, that is, an actual star. So I'm thinking, you know, if it is, this thing's got to be incredibly incredibly massive and hot. And I'm just not buying that Murph can survive swallowing a protostar or that they could carry Murph around with this thing inside of him, you know? Yeah. And I mean, you would think a protostar, which is a forming star, uh, mm-hmm. you would think it would be way, way, way bigger than, than Murph unless he's like a TARDIS and Murph is bigger on the inside, but, uh, <laughs> you know, and Sorry. I mean, it's, it's not clear, you know, exotic matter dilithium matrix. Is that the same thing as just the protostar engine or is, for example, the dilithium matrix, just some kind of power control system combining dilithium and exotic matter, not necessarily the star itself in a conventional starship. Well, for one thing, Star Trek has never explained in massive detail how warp drive engines and things work. But yeah. in a conventional starship, it's pretty clear that power comes from matter-antimatter reactions, which produces a huge amount of power. And mm-hmm. the dilithium is mixed up in that. Uh, my perception is it's some kind of control system. Uh, you know, if it's a crystal, maybe vibrations of the crystal help control the matter, antimatter mixer. I don't know anything like that. Plus, mm. we learned uh, last season in Discovery that dilithium exists partially in subspace. Oh, right. Yeah. So the role of dilithium has never been very well explained. And so it's even less clear what an exotic matter dilithium matrix <laughs> is, whether it's the, the whole engine or part of it or, or who knows we maybe can draw conclusions next time for what happens when I'm not sure they're going to directly come out and clarify that. And then finally, before we get to the meanings of the episode okay. um, near the end, and this is just kind of a, a funny little connection in my mind, I suppose, but near the end, Dal talks about corralling the miners to get them into the Rev 12. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't help, but remember the joke from galaxy quest. Remember that? Miners, not miners. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Most of them are apparently young scene. and they are extracting ore from the caverns and things. So the term does have double meaning. I'm not sure if the writers intended it to, but to me, uh, it, it, it made that click in my mind. <laughs> uh, hopefully these miners won't, you know, eat the weak and injured among them. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess it's time to shift gears here and talk about any underlying meanings or morals we uh, detected in this episode. Uh, what do you think, Michael? Well, there is a clear theme in this episode of working together, helping each other, helping the less fortunate and doing what's right. That is, yep. that is very overt and, and obvious. And in some ways, those things might seem like they'd be separate themes, but I think in this case, 
working together, helping each other, helping less fortunate, doing what's right. I think they all hang together as, as interrelated as part of the same message the script writers are giving us. I buy that. I'm, I'm going to add also, I think, related to that would be, well, we get this contrast between the hopelessness of Tars Lamora and Starfleet's commitment to strive for a better future. So I think folded into all that is this sort of message of hope. Mm -hmm. Janeway notes that they are risking everything to save others. And uh, the way she says it is to bring hope to a hopeless cause. And nothing is more Starfleet than that, Janeway or the Janeway hologram says. Right, which um, I think... uh, means that a a Kowat Milat nun might have been helpful here, maybe? (laughs) Or all of them, maybe. I don't know. (laughs) So another thing, again, I don't know what the symbolism here is, but the blue uniforms that they put on, they put on blue um, version of a Starfleet uniform. And in Starfleet, generally over the years, over the decades, blue has been the color of science, also medicine. And, or at least in the generation in which this, uh, this series is set. Mm-hmm. Go far enough forward and the medical people were white, but uh, in the next generation era, it was blue. And simply being in a Starfleet uniform is symbolic uh, for the crew about their intentions. And particularly yeah. since it really is Dal's idea to begin with. And, you know, different colors signal different things. Mm-hmm. The color blue signals high-tech. It signals logic as opposed to emotions. And so I think that the blue color did add some significant meaning. The fact that that is what they chose as opposed to some people wearing red and some people wearing blue and some people wearing mustard yellow. Everyone was in blue as a unity of purpose. Oh man, that that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that. So I was just thinking about these new uniforms. I like them, um, but I was just wondering well, you know, uh, what? why are they wearing these uniforms? Um, you know, and I thought maybe they're a, a cadet uniform. I also thought maybe they're uniforms worn by the crew of experimental vessels, perhaps. They're somewhat similar to what we've seen before, but really they're unlike anything I've ever seen in Star Trek before. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, each new Star Trek series tends to come up with a variation on the uniform in most that's, cases, yeah. not not quite always. I think Deep Space Nine largely used the the version of the uniform from the later seasons of Next Generation. It was interesting to me that this is kind of a pastel blue. It isn't it isn't the the darker, richer blue that we're That's used right. to. Kind of pastel. Yeah, and the pattern the pattern on the tunic was also different. So the the color and the pattern. I don't think we've seen that before. Yeah, I think you're right. You're right about that. They didn't strike me as cadet uniforms. At least the cadet uniforms we saw in Next Generation were were different. So it's kind of taking us down a rabbit hole talking about cadet uniforms. My original point still was that the blue has a connotation of science and logic and and high-tech things. And so I think that that color does underscore the actions in this episode. Yeah, and I feel like whenever we have anything to say about uniforms and clothing and the messages they send and the symbolism that's involved with them, you're the one who's who's giving us that information. And it fits very well with the rest of this episode. They're working more cohesively now as a team, less motivated by you know their own self-interest and the like. Yeah. So it it's oh. 
it's nice. There's nice coherence here. So. Well, thank you for the compliment. I mean, I have taught media criticism where <laughs> we we pull the media works apart and look for things that, that are symbolic. Of course, I've also taught not exactly graphic design, but some uh, marketing courses and things where that use graphic design. So the symbolism of color and logos and fonts and things is also mm-hmm. something I have a background in. Anyway, themes and meaning. There's another theme here that I think is, it doesn't quite jump out as much, but the theme of of planning, not shooting from the hip. We've used that term in previous episodes. And that comes back to what I often see in Star Trek episodes, which is a leadership lesson. Leaders lead best when they have well thought out plans that take all the factors and alternatives into consideration that are proactive in planning for possibilities. And remember that in leadership theory, a manager is someone who has formal authority But a leader may not be a manager. The leader is someone who leads by example and social relationships and putting the good of others at the forefront. And in that sense, really all of the crew here are showing their leadership by stepping up to rescue the unwanted. Even one or two of them like Pog that we kind of thought wouldn't. We got a little plot twist there when he was all for it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And Dow. Dal has grown a bunch this season, hasn't he? Yeah, which was, you know, before the season started, that was one of the things they told us was going to happen. But it is it is a very visible development process. And if we think about this series as a role model for young people that see it on Nickelodeon, mm-hmm. that's also, you know, a step-by-step process of growth and learning that that maybe is a good model for them. So Rodney, what do you think the title of the episode means? A moral star. At face value, moral presumably refers to the morality of what's going on and the morality of the decision the protostar crew makes. Mm -hmm. The opposite of that, actually amoral, which means the opposite of moral could refer to the diviner. I don't know. But but the meaning of star as part of the episode name is is less clear to me. Yeah. I mean, it's not obvious to me. And I thought about this a bit. It certainly wasn't initially. I have a few ideas, but I think that's one point we should make here is that we've just seen part one so far of a two-parter. So, you know, maybe when we see part two, the significance will become more clear to us. I did see though, accidentally, I guess you could say on memory alpha that a moral star is an anagram of Tars Lamora. That's interesting. That is, that is, which means that this episode name may have been established way at the beginning of planning as they were outlining what would happen in the Mm -hmm. season. So yeah, I do have a theory about the episode name and some of the background Thinking this week about particularly the unwanted, that's the name that these miners, who are also miners, are given, (laughs) the unwanted. And I can't get past the idea that Tars Lamora is like the opposite of or an evil dark version of Peter Pan's Neverland. Okay. In Peter Pan, children essentially get to Neverland by being unwanted. Peter Pan, as a pretty young child, runs away from home because he thinks his parents don't want him anymore, particularly when a new baby comes into the, into the household. 
the lost boys had each fallen out of their old style perambulators, you know, baby carriages, and were lost by their parents. And that also kind of implies maybe the parents didn't want them either, or they would have been more attentive. So in the diviner's version of Neverland, the children are unwanted. Dahl is there because his Ferengi foster parent, for want of a better term, sold him. We don't know the circumstances of the others exactly, but it may have been something more than just straightforward kidnapping in, in many of their cases. So this theory would suggest that Dahl is Peter Pan, that Gwyn is Wendy, the diviner is Captain Hook, and of course, the identity of the crocodile is yet to be revealed. Okay. So uh, do you remember how one finds, and, and adults, grown-ups can't, but kids can, how one finds Neverland? How does that happen? I'm, I'm, I'm very unfamiliar with Peter Pan here, I have to confess. It may be a phrase you're familiar with from Star Trek. Second star to the right and straight on till morning. You're kidding. Do you remember Captain Kirk saying that? Yes, uh, yes. At the end of a movie right before the Enterprise A was scheduled for decommissioning. Second star to the right and straight on till morning. And I'm considering, until we learn more next week at least, that the second star on the right maybe is a moral star. Is a moral star. Okay, so that suggests a metaphor for navigation, right? Now, th- this is yeah. something that, I, that it occurred to me, maybe, just maybe, you know, in this episode, Dow says that it feels like they lost because they did the right thing, right? But now we have this young crew being guided, not by self-interest like before, but by something like moral principle, which could be a, a star to steer not just their own actions, but the protostar by, right? Yeah, good, good thought. And Kirk addressed that also once, <laughs> quoting uh, from a poem by John Maysfield. The poem is called Sea Fever, and in there is a phrase, all I ask is a tall ship and a star to mm-hmm. steer her by. He was talking about a metaphor for his captaincy of the okay. Enterprise. So yeah, be really interested to see if we get some clarity as to the meaning of the two-part episode title, A Moral Star. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, any final thoughts or conclusions about this episode that you want to share, Michael? Well, I, I have a couple. And, you know, we touched on before that we still have, we have yet to find out what the fundamental motivation of the diviner is. Yeah. He called the protostar our salvation. Uh, and I think it's more likely, more, more and more, I think it's likely as well, how I'll say it. I think it's more and more likely that he is engaged in some sort of last ditch effort to save his species. I'm not clear how using the protostar and particularly protostar's ability to go really, really, really fast would accomplish that. But well, we'll see. I, I think that's a really high possibility as to what's going on behind the scenes here with his mission. Yeah, I agree completely with you. And um, I just hope that we finally learn the truth about his intentions in the next episode. We'll just have to wait and see. I have a friend who thinks that Gwyn and the Diviner's species was one reported way back in early next generation, reported to be destroyed by the Tax Utah. Well, okay, wow. You have to go. This, is, have to this go does not back. ring a bell. It's a device that can stop the nuclear reaction inside stars. The first time Picard went to Risa, 
uh, they ended up chasing the Toxiotot. Anyway, that oh. you can go back and find that. But yeah, uh, I will. Um, so I don't know about that specifically, but the idea that their home planet was destroyed, or at least that their species uh, was somehow wiped out as a result of Starfleet doing something or something Starfleet was involved in or Starfleet didn't prevent mm-hmm. could explain. He's pretty strong anger against Starfleet. So, yeah. So some kind of action by Starfleet may have affected his species and he's still trying to figure out how to, how to undo it. We'll see. Okay. No, I like this. I mean, this would explain his hatred of Starfleet, which I really comes out in this episode I'm sure that was inadvertent, whatever happened. I am a little tired of Starfleet being the bad guy, though, even inadvertently. We get a lot of that lately, don't we? Yeah. I mean, it may well be that this is an... I mean, remember uh, when Spock, when future Spock came back to the past and the Romulan guy was so mad at him? Mm -hmm. He was mad at him for trying but failing to save the planet Romulus. Mm-hmm. And this may well be something that it's not Starfleet's blame, whether they, whether they tried and were unsuccessful, you know, people that are mad about something can rationalize what they're mad about. And that doesn't necessarily have to make sense. Yeah, that's true. That's true. A couple other notes, a uh, quick one here. It does make sense that the Rev 12, the huge Rev 12 ship is the one that can evacuate all of the unwanted yeah, I mean, that thing is, like you say, I mean, it's it's massive, so it should be big enough. And that was apparently part of the, the caper, part of the scheme of the Protostar crew, uh, knowing that they would be left behind and that yeah. ship would presumably still be there. So that was part of their plan, I think. We will have to see if Gwen and the others anticipated that the Diviner would go back on the original deal. And whether she and maybe even the Janeway hologram are acting, playing the part, although the Diviner apparently did destroy the Rev-12's power systems, it sounds like they're going to be able to get the ship going again, either because the power source or at least the control systems inside Murph and the Diviner likely did not anticipate that. No, he seemed completely surprised. And another thing, thanks to their encounter with this technobabble space phenomenon, and it's goofy side effects last week. <laughs> um, some of the crew, especially Rock, they've had a lot of time to learn about starship technology and acquire skills. So I think the Diviner is underestimating them, and he's in for some more surprises. And underestimating their ability to work as a team, because he still largely perceives them as people who could, who could barely or couldn't communicate with each other. And so, yeah. There probably is some right. underestimation there. There was one scene where Rock was, I don't know what Rock was doing, but it was working with equipment and apparently some pretty hardcore technical things. Mm-hmm. And remember Rock had spent a long amount of time learning physics and engineering and computer mm-hmm. programming and all kinds yep. of stuff. So probably we will see some big reveals next week. And at least we can hope we'll get some big answers. Yeah, I can hardly wait. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, 10th episode. But for now, I guess that's going to do it. Uh, We'd like to thank you for joining us this week. And next time, it's the Prodigy season finale, episode 10. And we're also going to be here when Discovery returns in two weeks. Don't forget that. And that's when this new Starfleet member, Zora, 
has presumably revealed the location of the 10C. And Discovery is off to confront them? Maybe. Anyway, you can keep track of our new episodes and other announcements on our Twitter feed. That's at Trek underscore Academy. Or you can subscribe directly at anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. Thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you again next time.